Welcome to TP Talks, PwC's Global Transfer Pricing Podcast Series, where PwC tax professionals share insights on today's key transfer pricing developments. Our podcast today will focus on the transfer pricing implications of Mexican tax reform. My name is Dana Hart, and joining me today from PwC in Mexico City, I have transfer pricing partners Marta Maluska and Edgar Ahrens, legal partner Fernando Lorenzo, and international tax services partner Mario Gutierrez. Also joining me, I have Lily Kazemi. Lily is a director with our Washington, D.C. office. She will be the moderator for today's podcast. So, Lily, I will hand it over to you to get our podcast started. Thanks, Dana. On this week's episode, we are excited to be joined by our leading partners in Mexico to discuss all of the changes going on in that region. Effective January 1st of this year, different rules have taken effect, including a general anti-avoidance rule, or GAR, permanent establishment rules, new limitations on payments to preferred regimes, and reportable transactions rules. You may have read or heard of some of these rules, We are not only going to give background, but also share important transfer pricing considerations attached to each of these areas. Before we get into specifics, since this is a TP Talks podcast, Marta, I think it will be helpful to start our listeners on how the transfer pricing environment has changed in Mexico. Yes, of course, Lily. Thank you very much. Mexico, uh, as a part of the OECD, has been very proactive in adopting the BEPS action. And from a transfer pricing perspective, uh, we are moving um, in Mexico from a transfer pricing analysis, uh, mainly relying on testing margin or the value of the intercompany transaction towards analysis of the business substance and business reasons for the transaction. So the level of complexity in the transfer pricing analysis is indefinitely increasing. In addition to that, the level of transparency we we could observe in Mexico has also increased. The taxpayers in Mexico are obliged to report transfer pricing adjustments, specific transactions, business restructuring, among others. So definitely transfer pricing is more relevant in Mexico. Uh, and, of course, is a key component uh, of the policy and business considerations for many companies. Thank you for setting the scene for us, Marta. So sticking with you, tell us about the impact of the new GAR rules in Mexico. Of course. A new provision provides the, that legal act that lack business purpose and that result in a direct or indirect tax benefit can be recharacterized. The new rule will allow the tax authority in Mexico to presume that there is not a valid business purpose when the economic benefit is less than the tax benefit. Um, furthermore, the tax authority in Mexico can presume that the series of legal acts lack business purpose when the same economic benefit could have been obtained through a simple set of transactions, but the tax cost would have been higher. In that respect, the tax benefit under the new rules includes any reduction, deferral, or elimination of a contribution. In relation to the um, economic benefit, we don't have a specific definition. Thank you, Marta. Edgar, as Marta just alluded to, economic benefit can be an unclear concept, especially when you think about it with a transfer pricing lens. 
Can you explain economic benefit and what companies need to know about its practical application? Yes, of course, Lily. The economic benefit, as Marta says, is not explicitly defined in the law, but it, it, uh, it mentions which considerations it has to, to include when you estimate it. And one important thing is when you enter into transactions, when you are making restructures or big changes on your TP policies, any transactions that will have a high impact in the taxable income to tax authorities, during an audit, tax authorities may question these actions and they, and they could disallow the deduction of these transactions if the economic benefit is less than the tax benefit of the transaction or if this transaction would have, could have been done in less steps. Then here the economic benefit when you are, when you are calculating it should, should include things like protection of the assets, uh, projections of financial profitability in the future, uh, protection of the value of the stocks, anything that could, that could provide economic benefit as we study in school to the, to the taxpayer. And this economic benefit should not include or exclude in its calculations the tax benefit. And the tax benefit defined by tax authorities is any reduction, deferral, or elimination of a contribution. So here the, the, the strategy is to estimate economic benefit without including in this estimation the tax benefit. And uh, again, this should be considered in any transaction that will change in, in, a, in a big stand the taxable income of the taxpayer. Thank you, Edgar. Moving on to permanent establishment, Mario and Edgar, can you provide some background on the changes to the definition of a PE? Sure, let me take the lead, Lily. As a quick introduction on the permanent establishment changes, the intention of the reform is to align our domestic legislation with the recommendation on Action 7, also known as preventing the artificial avoidance of permanent establishment status, that is part of the base erosion profit shift in BEPS actions. So, with this in mind, the Mexican income tax law definition of a permanent establishment, although at first glance it would only be relevant where the treaty does not apply, is actually broader since, in fact, we have to consider these changes, particularly in the context of the multilateral instrument, also part of the BEPS uh, action plan uh, under, under Action 15. And, and the thing is that this broadens the permanent establishment definition for signatory countries and may limit treaty applicability. So going into the specific changes for 2020, the Mexican tax reform considers a permanent establishment to exist when a foreign entity acts in Mexico through a dependent agent and such person habitually concludes contracts on behalf of the non-resident or habitually carries out the principal role in the conclusion of the contracts and the contracts are executed in the name or on behalf of the non-resident. Or the contracts provide for the actual transfer of the rights or the temporary right to use property. Or finally, the contracts commit the non-resident to provide a service. Also, there are two new presumptions added that would determine when Mexican residents are considered to have a permanent establishment. One is when a Mexican resident that acts exclusively or almost exclusively on behalf of non-resident related parties, that will be considered as an independent agent acting outside of the ordinary course of its business activities. And two, 
An aggregation principle is included to bundle the analysis of complementary activities carried out among various Mexican legal entities to determine if the bundle of activities still can be considered preparatory and auxiliary. In case this test is failed, the permanent establishment exemption for auxiliary activities will no longer apply. Edgar, any thoughts to add to what Mario just said? Yes, in this case, it's important to consider the trust and pricing ethics or the support that this kind of analysis could bring to, to the changes in the law. Now, more than ever, during the NTP analysis, we have to review the functions and risks undertaken by the Mexican entity to overlook that with the new regulations, they could trigger a permanent establish in Mexico. And if they trigger, because the functions they are doing, doing, doing the agent in Mexico, uh, then an estimation of the possible attributable risk to the Mexican entity should be, uh, should be estimated. And then after these two exercises, the functional analysis to see if there's a permanent establishment according to the new rules and the estimation of the possible profit attributable to Mexico, the, the taxpayers could see the impact that this new is happening and in case take some actions to improve its position. Thank you, Edgar and Mario. Staying with the two of you, let's discuss limitation on the deduction of interest expense. As you know, many countries, including the United States, have a version of this rule. What is the context of the new rule in Mexico? Sure, let me address that one, Lily. In addition to the already existing limitations that includes thin-cap rules, back-to-back -back rules, among others, when we're talking about the interest deduction in Mexico, Companies must now calculate a second limitation. Taxpayers will have to apply the more unfavorable between thin cap and this new limitation. The new limitation contemplates that Mexican entities' net interest expense will be restricted to 30% of entities' adjusted taxable income. It's sort of a tax earnings before interest taxes depreciation and amortization. This new limitation applies to taxpayers that have individually accrued interest deriving from debts exceeding 20 million Mexican pesos, approximately uh, a little bit uh, less than 1 million US dollar. There is a possibility of computing the new interest deductibility limitation rule on a consolidated basis, but we must wait for further administrative rules. It is also possible to carry forward the excess non-deductible interest for the subsequent 10 fiscal years. Now, adjusted taxable income must be computed even if taxpayer does not obtain taxable profit in a given fiscal year or when a tax loss is generated. In other words, interest expense would be basically fully non-deductible for taxpayers if their computed adjusted taxable income is zero or negative. So proposed limitation applies to all net interest expense, including third-party debt. That's a, a significant change from the thin cap rules where it would only affect, in the end, uh, foreign-related parties. An exception for debt incurred for certain strategic activities would be exempted from this limitation. This aligns with the exemption that currently exists for the thin capitalization rule. Nonetheless, the actual wording is not exactly the same and that is creating some uh, concerns and doubts. And, and I would finally say that for purposes of determining the net interest expense, certain foreign exchange income or loss related to that is excluded from the interest definition. Unfortunately, the wording is also not that clear, 
So there's some ambiguity as you know what exactly could be that a foreign exchange income or loss that could be excluded from this calculation. Thank you, Mario. So Edgar, before we jump over to the next topic, if I were a transfer pricing director or even a VP of tax, by this point in the podcast, I'd be wondering, well, these new rules are going to change a lot of things, but specifically, how should I address my transfer pricing policy under these new rules? Can you comment on that? Yes, of course, Lily. In this case, the, the recommendation to to, uh, to our friends is to review their TP policy actually, the, their loans. If the loans that they have in place now, they are still payable on the, under the new economic circumstances, and maybe to, re, to revise the, the terms of their loans to their actual economic circumstances and evaluate if, if such terms are payable or not, and then estimate this to the new rules, compare it, and maybe make some capitalizations or change the terms and conditions in order to make them more in line with previous uh, provisions in the law and, and these new ones. And then avoid or avoid to have any disallowance of the deductions because of the new rules or the thin cap or just for not having economic substance as we discussed earlier. Thank you for that perspective. Mario and Marta, let's move to deductibility of payments to a preferred tax regime. What are the key considerations for companies, particularly when it comes to transfer pricing? Yeah, and, and before we go to the transfer pricing part, let me give you a little bit of context of this rule. So now there's, I mean, there's going to be a new rule that denied the deductibility of payments made by Mexican residents to foreign related parties, subject to what we could call a low tax jurisdiction or tax heaven, or for Mexican purposes, we typically know it as RECIPRE for its acronym in Spanish. Uh, so regardless that the payment is made on an arm's length basis, it could be non-deductible if some of the following uh, rules uh, apply. So a RECIPRE is defined as a jurisdiction with an effective income tax rate that is less than 75% of Mexico's current 30% corporate rate, which would be a 22 and a half rate. In this regard, all levels of tax imposed on the income, federal and state, should be considered as long as the tax is considered as an income tax. As an example of what could be considered as a refipre, as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017, the corporate tax rate in the U.S. is generally reduced from 35% to 21%. So that, you know, just at that point, it would put the U.S. below the 22 and a half that we just mentioned a few minutes ago. Then, uh, or furthermore, this, uh, as part of this uh, act that I just mentioned, uh, it also includes that foreign-derived intangible income regime, FDII, uh, provides for an incentive to domestic corporations in the form of a lower tax rate on income for corporations that derives gross income from, ex from export activities. In other words, the effective tax rate would be around 13.125%. So that, you know, would also put U.S. or a U.S. entity with this specific type of uh, revenue below the 22.5, and therefore any payment that Mexico makes to this company could be non-deductible. It would apply the, to payments made to a third party subject to a refipre, 
if the third parties interpose between the related parties through a structured agreement. This is that denial would also apply for payments made to a party not directly subject to refibre if the direct or indirect recipient uses the payment received to make deductible payments to group members or to a structured agreement and these payments are themselves subject to a refibre. This language would impose a look-through ability for payments made by Mexican residents if, pursuant to certain rules, the income is deducted abroad and ultimately accrued in a refibre. An important exception to the deductibility rule exists when the payment derives from the recipient's business activity and the recipient has the personnel and assets sufficient to carry out such, such business activities. The recipient must also maintain and have formed its effective seat of management under the laws of a country with which Mexico has a broad exchange of information agreement in place. Uh, lastly, I would say that hybrid mechanisms meaning deductible in Mexico but not, not accrable proportionally in the foreign jurisdiction due to a difference in the characterization by Mexican and foreign law of the payment or legal vehicles involved would also be non-deductible. So the big takeaway from this is, you know, all those payments that Mexican companies do to related parties that qualified as these uh, tax havens, as these refipres, would have to go through the test of substance to confirm that, in fact, the transaction was not implemented just for purposes of taking a tax advantage. Thank you, Mario. And uh, if we look at the transfer pricing considerations of this new rule, I would focus mainly here on the substance um, piece. So uh, even though this minimum substance uh, requirement is not clearly defined in the new regulations, the law only mentions about the, the people and assets. We do believe that the Mexican tax authorities are expecting that the, the territorial rule to be applied, you know, the similar to the country by country approach. So to have a presence of people uh, in the country where the counterpart is located. Of course, um, given the fact that we currently don't have those specific rules uh, and the definition for the minimum substance, I would strongly uh, suggest to review the existing substance using uh, the existing uh, OECD transfer pricing uh, guidelines. In that respect, um, I would recommend to look uh, at the functional analysis that, that is supporting intercompany transactions, um, whether uh, we have um, people that they have competence and authority uh, to make the decisions uh, when assessing uh, when, whether the functions performed are adequately supported. Uh, I would also look at the risk element, whether there is uh, sufficient capital to support the risk uh, and whether those risks are, are, are significant. So those are one of the elements uh, that I would uh, strongly recommend to review as a part of this analysis. And maybe additionally interesting point to mention that Mario was discussing uh, is that on, on average, in the international context, the average tax rate has decreased significantly in the last 10 years. As an example, the, the average tax rate of the OECD countries is 22.6%, so it's almost close to the, the threshold of the preferred tax regime. So uh, in those specific countries, there may be, uh, the, those may, they may be considered preferred tax regimes and transactions with those countries may be at risk. So again, the, our recommendation uh, is to map all uh, payments abroad 
uh, and analyze um, the, the effective tax rate and, and being paid by the counterparts of the transaction with Mexico. Thank you both. Uh, this seems to be a really critical part of the new legislation, and I really liked how you tied that to the U.S. rate and the U.S. FDII regime, although, as you just pointed out, um, a lot of countries' effective tax rates would fall into the definition and be subject to to a refipre. I hope I said that right. I, I wanted the opportunity to try out the word. So thank you, though, for your for your explanation of that. That was very helpful. Finally, let's discuss reportable transactions. Fernando and Marta, what are the important considerations here? Yes, uh, thank you, uh, Lily. Basically, uh, according to this recent tax reform on, on the federal fiscal code, Mexico is following uh, tax policy as many other jurisdictions, such as the U.S. and the U.K., which basically obliges tax advisors uh, to disclose to the tax authorities the reportable transactions as described in the federal fiscal code. This is not necessarily bad, but it will clearly disclose the tax strategy of the taxpayers in front of the of the tax authorities. The purpose of this obligation to report the reportable transactions is basically for the tax authorities to identify risks of tax avoidance from the taxpayers. This this obligation uh, will start. Uh, that is the obligation to report these transactions will be effective on January 1st, 2021. But uh, what is important to mention here is that it shall include transactions carried out through 2020. So now in real time, transactions that are carried out by taxpayers in Mexico in, uh, during 2020 uh, shall be reported in 2021. Uh, one important element of this uh, new um, tax uh, reform on the federal fiscal code is that the, the broad definition on who is the tax advisor, because the general rule is that the tax advisor is the one that shall report these uh, transactions to the tax authorities, and on an exceptional basis, it will be uh, the, the taxpayer itself. The, the tax advisor, for purposes of the federal tax code articles, basically comprises many individuals or entities that are linked in the implementation, design, uh, marketing of any kind of uh, reportable transaction. In other words, any individual or entity, either Mexican or foreign resident on, of the U.S. or the U.K. or Europe or wherever it is located, shall be uh, considered as, as a tax advisor for purposes of uh, this uh, new obligation. Yes, Fernando, thank you. And what I would like to add that although that new law includes a list of reportable transactions, uh, the description is very broad. And, and of course, we are still awaiting a more detailed regulation. Um, the list includes, among others, some of the items I would like to point out is that the transactions related to the, the avoid exchange of information between tax authorities, the payment of inter-income tax in Mexico by, by foreign transfer and entity or foreign legal vehicles, uh, avoid the identification of the beneficial ownership of the payment or a set of payments or transactions that return partially or fully to original payer uh, 
for example, uh, sales and leaseback transactions. So those some of the examples uh, that uh, are included uh, uh, on the list of reportable transactions. Thank you, Fernando and Marta. So we've covered a lot of ground in a relatively short amount of time. Before we end the podcast, can each of you please give some of your key takeaways for our listeners? We will start with you, Marta. Yes, of course. So definitely transfer pricing is more relevant nowadays than, than, than ever post-tax reform in Mexico. And I would say that the, from a tax function perspective, uh, transfer pricing in Mexico is now a key component uh, of, uh, of a policy and business consideration for the multinational company. Edgar, what would you like our audience to take away from this? As Marta said, and I fully agree with her, now it's more relevant to taxpayers to, to review their actual transfer pricing policies in their company transactions to see if they are really found in, in the new topics of this uh, reform. And now it's they are in a good moment to revise and um, prevent any possible risk. Thank you, Edgar. How about you, Fernando? Yes, uh, basically this uh, tax reform with, uh, will impact business uh, models of many uh, multinational companies. So it is very important to identify uh, how the transactions are impacted in particular by the by all these new provisions. And obviously we suggest uh, to uh, develop uh, different files in order to be prepared in case uh, audits come from the tax authorities. And last but not least, uh, Mario, key takeaways for our audience. Thank you, Lily. And you know, following a little bit uh, Fernando's idea, although not entirely new concepts, the ones that we have talked about, since most of the countries are already moving toward, uh, let's say, more global taxation and paying attention to the tax treatment on other jurisdictions, as you may have experienced from the past, Mexico typically adapts these international concepts and they turn out to be more spicy than in the rest of the world. Thus, considering these are complex rules, a case-by-case -case analysis is strongly recommended and start addressing now its impact on taxpayers' tax position would be the more advisable thing to consider. Thank you to all our speakers for your insights. It looks like we may get some more guidance, so we'll look forward to having you back on our podcast to talk about that. Back to you, Dana. Great. Thank you, Lily, and thank you to all of our speakers. I also want to thank our listeners. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the speakers. You can find their contact information in the description of this episode. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.